0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. How do we create inclusive spaces? Spaces where marginalized groups are less likely to be targeted. Spaces where we feel comfortable to be our best self. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Pippa Catterall, Professor of History and Policy at the University of Westminster. She's collaborated with Arab on a report entitled "Queering Public Space" that sets out some of the ways in which we can create more inclusive places.
1: Okay, so my name's um, Pippa Catterall. I'm Professor of History and Policy at the University of Westminster. I'm also a member of long standing uh, with the, the London Historic Environments Forum, so I've done lots of work on uh, heritage within the built environment and uh, get involved in things like the, the role of statues and memorialisation in uh, the built environment, which has been strictly topical in recent times. Um, and... Um, uh, I've recently been working on the nature of public space and, in particular, what makes public space more... What might make public space more inclusive uh, and welcoming and safe? for various relatively marginalised groups, um, which has resulted in a report I've just co-authored with uh, Dr. Omar Azuz of Arup, um, entitled Queering Public Spaces. And in saying that, that there, there are, of course, two uses of the term queer. In this, so on the one hand, we're thinking about people who we would conventionally describe as LGBTQ plus, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, queer, uh, which is a kind of panto term, and then you can go on to intersex, asexual, etc., etc. Um, in other words, people who do not conform to um, normative uh, standards or, or normative social expectations of sexual orientation or gender conformity. Um, And so Queering public space is partly about how do you make public spaces more safe and more welcoming for these people. And clearly there is a problem of public safety there because we know that in uh, the UK, for instance, the number of um, LGBTQ plus hate crimes has kind of doubled in the last decade. Um, and the very fact that public authorities record uh, hate crime against such groups uh, is an indication that you are, um, if you are a member of such groups, um, seen as marginal and vulnerable. But of course, they're not the only people who are vulnerable in these spaces. Uh, for obvious reasons, um, we could talk about queering public space in terms of accessibility. Uh, and that's not just talking about uh, making them more accessible for people who for whom mobility is a problem it's also about uh, trying to protect uh, disabled people who are among the most vulnerable to hate crimes um, and when people when when the general public think about um, uh, disability, and indeed when architects think about uh, disability, very often they focus upon uh, physical disability. Um, so I'm just involved in a project for the Institute of Structural Engineers, um, and we keep on having to say, when you're talking about disability, it doesn't just mean people who have very visible physical problems, um, very often the people who are most likely to be targeted for hate crime in public space are those who are neurodiverse um, because they stand out uh, and because the the perpetrators of hate crimes, um, one of the reasons why why they commit hate crimes is uh, because they um, uh, feel... um, Feel uncomfortable seeing people who are so different from themselves. There is also uh, research which shows that very often they 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 think that they are expressing in the hate they uh, they convey uh, a general view that other people will actually approve of what they do, um, which points to the importance of creating spaces which encourage people to be upstanders, not bystanders. Um, so, so on one level, we're talking about queering public space in terms of include, including people and making it safer. But the other meaning of queer is um, to take, um, if you like, authority, authority and critically appraise it, not assume that authority structures are somehow God-given, default, normative, um, because they're not, they're, they're constructs. Uh, I mean, to take one of my areas of research, I do a lot of work on national identities. Nations are not God-given, uh, even though they might be mentioned in the Bible. You know, they're, they're social constructs. I, I mean, we might all buy into them, but they're still social constructs. Um, uh, sexualities are social constructs, if you like. Uh, I mean, they may express a, a degree of, uh, of biological um, uh, behaviour, but they're still uh, the way in which we present gender, the way in which we uh, construct our sexual behaviours in in public space. Or socially defined the
0: concept that comes up in the report is this concept of visualizing and i i wondered whether you might talk about what is it that makes us um stand out in a public space or or um or, or how are um, lgbtq plus people trying not to stand out or how does the public space interact with this idea of being seen um, and uh, and and not being seen and then also i wanted to ask about that concept of visualizing I mean, how do you uh, create a space in which it it is normal to to be neurodiverse or it is uh, usual or not remarkable? Um, So that idea of standing out and and the usual.
1: Okay, and and it's really important to explain that term because um, uh, it may be unfamiliar to large numbers of people um, uh, and... uh, very often, I find myself having to say, no, this is not the same as normalize. Um, uh, it, it actually means something totally different. Um, so, the, the concept of normalization is that there is a normal. Uh, which is why we use terms like normative. Um, and and the, the, the notion of the normal is that there is a standard form of behaviour, or a standard form of how to be human, or a stand, standard form of whatever, um, from which other people f- fail to conform. Um, and uh, so normalising uh, suggests that what you're trying to do is get people to conform to these norms and standards whereas usualizing is going actually humanity isn't like that humanity is actually quite diverse i mean we're diverse in terms of race we're diverse in terms of our religion we're diverse in terms of our sexuality um, and we're diverse in terms of our our abilities um just to take some examples which is diverse in terms of our ages um and when you're talking about a public space which works for the public that means everybody It doesn't mean just um, some kind of default setting which uh, somehow turns out to be cis, white, male uh, and middle class or or something like that. Um, So, usualizing is about uh, seeing that diversity and accepting that diversity for what it is and accepting that diversity has always been there. Gay people have always existed. You, know, you may not the, the, the latest survey suggests ten percent of the british public don 't like that um, and thinks that they shouldn 't exist uh, and of course, there are lots of countries around the world where it 's illegal to be yourself um, you know, seventy one countries criminalize homosexual, male homosexuality um, but um that's not going to stop it happening, because it's not a lifestyle choice. And the whole notion, I mean, when the AIDS epidemic uh, struck in the 1980s, Connie Norman, who was this great AIDS campaigner in uh, L.A., said, why is it straight people have a life and gay people have a lifestyle? I mean, it's, it's not like that. We have lives too. Um, and uh, and this is not a choice. Um, indeed, very often um, the choice is in trying to pass in a society which is deeply hostile to us. So uh, what happened, when I talk about um, uh, invis- visibility or invisibility in, in public space... That means what, what uh, one respondent to a survey in Boston uh, called Editing Yourself. Uh, so as to tone yourself down, tone down my queerness so as to not get targeted. Um, I mean, take the the example of Denmark. Denmark was uh, decriminalised homosexuality in 1933, um, was the first country in the world to legalise gay marriage in 1989, and a survey three years ago showed that a third of gay people in Denmark still will not hold hands with their partners in public for fear of being attacked. In this recent book uh, about New York, um, uh, Jen Jack Giesen King talks about um, lesbians who, when they get to Sixth Avenue, which is a big thoroughfare going through the city, um, they automatically drop hands with their partners and when they get across this avenue into the village then they they take hold hands again so they edit themselves strategically and locationally as they traverse space um because they're conscious of risk factors so one of the things we ended up concluding was that paradoxical as it may seem um LGBTQ people need less visibility in public space. Uh, so on the one hand, we want them to be more visible. We want them to be more accepted. We want them to be more acceptance we- of diversity and utilisation and so on. But to make people feel safer, they need to be less visible. Um, and so very wide-opening, echoey spaces... Um, when you feel uncomfortable when you feel very visible when you feel that you are likely to be targeted and of course when you feel that your body language conveys that as well to uh, would-be predators as it were um, then um, what arguably what we need to do is think about how can we reduce that level of anxiety a recent survey in the UK So last year of uh, transphobic hate crimes uh, found that um, a lot of trans people avoid whole areas of cities completely uh, because of these fear factors. Um, And we also know that women avoid whole areas of cities at night. Um, We know that... um, uh, Lack of access is not the only reason why disabled people will uh, fail to access public um, areas of cities. Um, so, when we talk about accessibility, it's getting beyond the existing building codes and so on. Like in, in Britain, there's something called <clears throat> Building Standard 8300. 8, 8, 8, 8, which is about um, inclusive design, but it's almost entirely about accessibility and improving social mobility rather than thinking about well what makes people feel that they 're safe in these spaces and included in these spaces and that they can recognize themselves in these spaces, and that what what designs into this space a sensibility of diversity where um, Queer people, for instance, won't stand out like a splash splash of colour on an otherwise white canvas or something like that.
0: I think it's interesting you talk about this wide space. We often think of these wide spaces as, oh, I can see everybody else here. Maybe it's brightly lit. Um, and so therefore, it's a safe space. Uh, but of course, you're very visible in that space. So can you describe a space that that would be more ideal? What kind of, uh, in a nighttime environment, What what were the spaces that were Um, seem to be safer? Because, um, you know, I often am picturing, you know, big, brightly lit square or a kind of path through a dark and winding park. But I imagine it's somewhere between those two extremes. Did you find spaces that people identified as uh, spaces in which they would feel comfortable?
1: I mean, if you, if, talking of parks um, if you look at London um, among the spaces where people feel most comfortable holding their um, yeah, same-sex partner's hand are in green spaces um, and that's uh, it, it's not about being able to, to uh, see uh, long distances, it's partly about broken sight lines I think whereas if you talk about a wide open space you've got 360 degree uh, uh, Sightlines, and you can feel that it's not so much you being able to see, it's you being seen. Um, if you think about it, um, male uh, spa- open spaces are historically male spaces. I mean, it's men's voices which carry further in those spaces, which can also, f- you know, uh, and Vaucous groups of of lagered-up groups of people, for instance, at certain times of of day um, or night, can be incredibly intimidating just because of how it impacts them on the soundscape. Um, If you think about... um, You're you're wandering across one of these spaces. Who does the looking in these spaces? Who's actually looking at people If you're a woman walking across a wide open space full of strangers, do you look at strangers in the eye? Or are you conscious of strangers looking at you? Who are mostly men? Who does the looking in these spaces? We watch women crossing a public space. They don't make eye contact with people they tend to look down um and that's because to make eye contact with um other people is to invite a response and to invite a response um can also uh, end up being quite intimidating so there's research by uh, geographers like Valentine for instance which talks about how um, this can be even worse for lesbians because if you get hit on by a guy and then you (laughs) and he then suspects that you're a lesbian they may be accepting but they may see it as an affront to their masculinity I mean in lots of countries around the world you still have this view that well I will rape the lesbianism out of you Um, like that's going to work I mean, surely that would just put you off men even more. But uh, I mean, it, the the weird ways in which these people think is is uh, is, is something that needs to be, um, or the seemingly irrational ways in which uh, these things are processed uh, needs to be um, uh, needs to be thought about. And of course, it's still encoding this idea that being gay is somehow a lifestyle choice. Um, I found it. You talked about the position of benches in the report. I found that
0: really interesting as well. Um, and talked about benches um, f- facing into a site or facing a view as opposed to facing each other and the kind of feeling of that. And I thought it, it tallied with this idea of looking in many of the public spaces I'm thinking at. There are people watching me from benches. <laughs> um, so it's it's quite an odd thing that we place these benches to, as a sur- kind of surveillance, which I think is perceived as safety. There's this idea that surveillance is safety, but surveillance is not always
1: safe. safe for who? I mean, it is is one of the things. And um, so if you think about a lot of um, streetscapes, the the, the lighting is not for the pedestrian, it's for the motorist. Um, And uh, you have pools of light which do not, provide sufficient uh, uh, light on the um, pavement itself um, and the, the um, safety is compromised when you move from light into shade and so on so arguably what you need is not necessarily huge amounts of bright light because if you think about it bright light is generally speaking, intimidating. It's actually intimid- intended to be intimidating. So security lighting is bright white light, which is designed to keep you out of an area. And in New York, security lighting has been used to try and keep queers out of the formerly queer space of Christopher Street uh, Christopher Street Pier and, and places like that. Um, so uh, the harsh lighting, is not uh, very inclusive um what you need is the, uh, to think about it, is the quality of light the positioning of light uh the degree of ambient lighting so you can improve the um uh, safety of the space just by having a diverse uh, and mixed palette of, of lighting colors as you Traverse a retail uh, street, for instance, um, and because it one the diverse palette of colours will signal diversity. Two, there is ambient lighting actually on the pavement, um, and uh, three, uh, you can see as well as being seen, um, and and very often the problem is uh, not that uh you it is, is about being visible rather than being able to see so um talking about benches and so on a lot of benches as you say are positioned to be able to see the view um, but on a uh, if you've got benches around the, the the edge of a echoing military style public square built in the 19th century and so on um what you're essentially doing is watching all the passers by your, uh, and um, uh, checking them out or whatever. Um, one of the things that researchers found on how you feminize cities is that um, it, there's a a choice or, 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 or a, a desire expressed for having more intimate spaces so instead of having the benches um, in serried almost military rows um, you have them so that they're looking in on each other which doesn't mean you can't see out but it does mean that you're not so immediately visible to people. So you're only visible from a number of angles. And anyone who uh, anyone who sees you is also only going to see you for a relatively short period. But you can see out for quite a long way in a direct line of sight. Uh, so I think that... Um, uh, that kind of breaking up of sight lines, that creating uh, more intimate spaces, that uh, creation of spaces where you can sit facing each other and talking uh, to each other rather than talking to the view, as it were, is something which comes out of of that research looking at specifically women's um, experience of the city. But I think it also comes out in some of the responses from the survey work we did where people talked about, we want cosy corners we want um, we want places where we can have that sense of intimacy in public space uh, rather than them being these wide open spaces which were created in the 19th century for public spectacle and for public order I mean if you think about it the way in which spaces like Trafalgar Square in London were designed was partly about public the management of public order in, in a period where you're moving into a mass society so, that was the sensibility of the Victorian designers but we, we we really ought to be getting away from that kind of approach now, I think.
0: The report talks about the history of the neighborhood and moving beyond the neighborhood I think it'd be really interesting to talk about these neighborhoods um, uh, in in various cities around the world, how they've kind of evolved. In the, and uh, I mean, it talks about developer speculation in these areas, um, how they've become tourist attractions and the communities that perhaps uh, feel excluded from those areas. Uh, so it'd be, good, it'd be good to hear a little bit about these spaces.
1: Okay, so, I mean, the, the concept of the Gaborhood began to emerge in the 1980s with the work initially by Manuel Cassells in uh, the Castro in uh, San Francisco. Um, and uh, since then has been gradually expanded and lots of places have uh, become identified as Gaberhoods. There's even, I think last year, something called the gablehood Foundation was uh, set up, which now labels particular... Um, parts of cities as uh, as gay So um, Edinburgh was uh, recently celebrating. It was its um, it, it, um, gay village has been labelled one of the 33 gay in the world, and uh, by this foundation. So it's terribly exciting. Um, and it, as you look around the the the, the world, uh, there are a number of. Very well known gablehoods, which have been uh, analyzed in various ways by uh, researchers uh, and have, as you say, become sites of tourism, uh, have become loci for um, collections of gay, um, queer, inclusive businesses, and so on. And, you know, Manchester's gay village, the the gay village in Toronto, um, Newtown in uh, Sydney and so on. These tend to be... I mean, the ones which have been identified tend to be in Anglophone Western countries. You can find uh, them in um, uh, in other countries. So uh, Marais in Paris is a neighbourhood. Is though I don't know if it's been labelled as such. Um, uh, La Cuenta in uh, Madrid is a gaberhood. Um So there's... Um, but you're you're not finding them in lots of other parts of the world. Um, so I mean, there's been work on actually. How do you get a neighbourhood in South Africa, um, given the the racial history of that country? And uh, this this gets to one of the problems of of historically. I, I, a lot of the early work on it didn't notice some of the intersectionalities in these in these places. That primarily they were. Gay white male spaces, and sometimes in creating the gablehood, because very often they, what what did they involve was the colonisation of often run down, um, relatively poor areas, relatively low rent areas, and therefore relatively ethnic ethnically diverse areas. Um, so you could say the creation of the gablehood is itself a form of gentrification. Uh, very often. Um, If you look at the states, uh, the uh, gay white males tend to be on pretty good incomes, household incomes. Um, Lesbian couples, on the other hand, are on relatively low incomes. Trans people are on even lower incomes. Any of these groups, if they're people of uh, of colour, or on lower incomes than their white equivalents. Um, so uh, there is a, a simple um, uh, sort of income gradient which tends to lead to these kinds of things. I mean, some, um, some research has pointed to gablehoods emerging in places like Houston, Texas, um, as a result of the actions of lesbian realtors. Well, you're only going to be going to a lesbian realtor if you can afford to buy real estate in the first place. Um, so uh, you know, it, it, this is not going to speak to the lived experience of large numbers of people. And if you look at uh, how people who can't afford to live in a and in, in the UK, I think a lot of gablehoods are not particularly residential anyway, Um then that means you travel to these you know, to these sites to access gay bars or clubs or whatever um, which are also of course sites for for hooking up um, and um that means that you sometimes have to use dangerous public transport. I mean, one thinks of the uh, lesbians who got beaten up on the night bus in London a year or so ago. Um, and, you know, that's the, that's the case we know about. Um, the, um, uh, in New York, there's been research which shows, yeah, white lesbians catch taxis to go to the gayborhood. Black and Latino lesbians don't um and indeed they uh, in part they don't because the taxi drivers don't expect them to be catching taxis um and so i mean you could talk about that space in itself can be an exclusionary space um just just being within that transport pod as it were um so uh, the, the the notion that the neighbourhood provides a queer enclave where um, people don't have to edit themselves and can be safe and so on is actually quite problematic because it's exclusionary. Trans people are particularly excluded from from a lot of these spaces, and they also tend to attract homophobes. So I I was talking to the guy who runs um, uh, Stop Hate in UK in London. He said, well, when I I talk about LGBTQ hate crimes, I always talk about um, them happening outside the gay clubs and and saunas in Vauxhall because people go there, they know that the people coming out, uh, sorry, homophobes go there, they know that the people coming out are uh, perhaps more vulnerable because they've been drinking and they can find them there. So uh, in that sense, uh, what you want to do is, is try and think about how you can desist these kinds of crimes more generally. Like the, the evidence, the, the evidence um, is not as great as I would um, like. Um, it's surprising how little research has been done on why people commit hate crimes um, or the psychology of hate crimes. Um, But um, such evidence as there is suggests that the perpetrators of this tend to hunt in packs. They tend to be... Um, um, e- relatively easy to desist uh, they're, they're sometimes um, uh, hunting people because of a lack of familiarity um, and so there's a kind of outgroup stereotyping going on here uh, and so they're responding to things which make them feel uncomfortable and in some cases they are closeted themselves and they're, re- they're responding from a position of self-loathing um, and and uh, you know, hatred for people who can express themselves in a way they don't feel able to. Um, so, obviously, design factors in and of themselves will not address that complex range of issues. But I think if you design in diversity and utilising, you can help and creating... Monocultures, very monotonous, anonymous spaces um, don't tend to help make anybody feel included. Over-designed spaces where it's all about kind of the 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 architect going, look at me, Uh, look at what I can design, rather than designing them for the lived experiences of the people who are going to use them, is not, I think, the best way of including everybody in those spaces you
0: talked about your work in public art in heritage what is the role of that in the city in, in beyond the neighborhood, in terms of I mean whether it's preserving LGBTQ plus um, history or whether it's installing new um, bits of city to to try to make them more inclusive
1: If you um, think about the statues we have in the UK, uh, the vast majority of them, uh, according to um, Historic England, were established in the uh, 19th century. And they reflect what people in the 19th century thought was important. Um, And... um, or important as messages to send out to people at that time so if you think about the statues of confederate generals in the uh, south they weren't erected immediately after the war they were erected during the Jim Crow era and they were there to send out political messages to the people who saw them Um, and that's why they're not part of history they're they're very deeply and intentionally political um, uh, in the same way that you know, Roman emperors erected statues of themselves at the limes of the Empire to say this is, you know, I, this is my territory, this is what I hold." Um, it's a, statues send out political messages. Uh, the first person to have his statue all over the place in uh, the, in England was a man called William III. Uh, 30, 40 years after he died, but it's a way, uh, at a time when there was still a Jacobite threat, these statues were put out as a way of saying that this is the legitimacy of this state. they, they weren't accurate representations of William Third. I mean, he's always shown on a horse. Falling off a horse is what killed him. So you know, it, it is a deeply problematic way of thinking about these things. Um, if you look at statues in uh, as, as well, most of them are of men. Very often they're military men. They, they represent a... A, 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 a national myth, which is often about violence. Um, they're not necessarily terribly inclusive. Only about twenty percent of the statues in the UK are of women. Most of the uh, of those are of royal women, and the ones which uh, remain are of anonymous women, usually semi semi naked. Um, so, um, you know, Victoria is absolutely everywhere, of course, but you know. Um, uh, so, again, they're, they're not exactly representative of uh, people, and most of them are of uh, people from the past with whom we know absolutely nothing uh, or, or have nothing in, in commons. Um, if you think about um, these statues as well, many of them are encoding an imperial past, and you could argue, well, if you actually want um uh, statues to speak to the uh, to the present. You should be thinking about um, how do you convey a, a decolonization uh, How do you convey a more usualising uh, of this? How do you convey uh, this to a very different country? Um, I mean, I think there should be a statue of limitations on all statues. They, they should all have a, a kind of time-limited period to them, and then after, say, 50 years or so, you go, well, does this really speak to our heritage anymore, or should we think about changing it? Um, and um, I, I, I mean, I also think a lot of uh, statues in public space, um, you can, how can you represent really complex issues with a human being, a single human being. Um, How can you represent the Holocaust in that way? How can you represent an atrocity in that way? You can't. Um, So I I, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, public art, which um, expresses things in more complex ways because you can't express... Uh, many things through just saying okay this this human being represents this um, yeah, so, uh, in turn, uh, and the other thing which gets back to the point about queering uh, public space is um, that I think people need to be able to recognise themselves in public space. If you look at uh, representation of LGBTQ people in the UK, it, and indeed people of colour, is conspicuous by its absence. So there's um, some representations of Alan Turing, um, not always uh, usually reflecting on his contribution to to the history of computing rather than the fact that he was effectively driven to his death by the British state for being queer. Um, And, you know, so much for gratitude. Um, And uh, the uh, representation of people like Virginia Woolf in uh, Bloomsbury, there's no reflection of the sexuality which is absolutely central to her own work. Um, So... um, uh, it, it, if you're walking through these spaces and, and, and you know when you're just coming out or whatever it's very easy to feel I am the only gay in the village or, or, or whatever and, and if you see representation of yourself, it changes that. I, I, I was reading something the other day about the, the, they just put in a, in a rainbow crossing in a town in Gloucester where there's no gay bar, there's no real gay organisations or anything, but the, the, the local gay community was going, this is great because it makes us feel less marginal. I mean, it may feel tokenistic if you do it in Camden uh, or somewhere like that, um, but in, in small-town England um, or indeed small, you know, small-town America or whatever, that can be a really important sign of, of you are included. You too can be part of this community uh, and you can see yourself encoded in the built environment. Um, <clears throat> so I think all of that can be really important. The other thing I would say about public art is that it can break up space um, and signal uh, inclusivity, just sometimes by providing a splash of colour, by breaking up the monochrome, uh, monotonous nature of of space. And... um, And sometimes by doing it in a really quirky way. One of my favourite examples of this is you walk up a hill in Bristol and at the top you have one of those signs which is just a tiny sign which is like for no loading here, except it's been changed to say, you two are so beautiful. And and, and to me it's a queering of the space. It's not queering in the sense of being LGBTQ. It's just saying, actually, you should value yourself. Uh, and uh, and it's just that nice little that nice little message, and is of course a querying of uh, something which is usually used as a, as a piece of authority. No loading here, and instead it's going, no, you two are beautiful. Value yourself, and 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 how can you value other people if you don't value yourself? I see
0: the design professionals in in architecture school. They are they are educated into a particular taste. Which often doesn't include vibrant colors. Uh, it often includes this idea that the the um, uh, a, a place in a single palette of materials is is better taste. Um, you know, and this idea of um, uh, of uniformity and some of the things you talk about about you know arbitrarily breaking up roof lines and sight lines. You know, might be something that is um, in in a way. Uh, part of the design education to kind of become create these spaces. So how how do we tackle that? How do we how do we re-educate what good taste looks like to make it more inclusive?
1: I'll give you two um, relatively recent examples. So um one of my favorite really colourful buildings is the Hundert Vosser House in Vienna. Um, And that's that's incredibly colourful. And people love it. I mean, people go to Vienna to see the 100 Hundertwasser House, and it's it's not in a single palette. It's got splodges of colour all over it. Um, if you, uh, I think some of the most successful uh, recent designs are ones which um, play with colour in, in interesting ways. And I'm not saying you need to be you know really in your face uh, with these colours and um, um, you know, go mad. Um, I mean, you could go for a kind of Mark Rothko more contemplative uh, approach to colour. And uh, of course, Rothko's paintings were all about um, colour and spirituality uh, and how that colour palette encourages a mindful reflexivity uh, in these spaces. But I, I, the impression I get with some buildings is that the, the architects have gone for, for a colour. Because they think it should be done in a very simple palette. There's also, I mean, there is also a question of if you design in a particular aesthetic, um, you are um, sometimes encoding a, um, a, a a particular view of, of who belongs in this space as well. Um, So if you have a very white background, then anyone who's not white is going to stand out against that background. Um, I I think you can design buildings to look good at different times of day and night. So if you think about the new Central Library in Birmingham, which has got these fantastic colours on uh, in the evening. and uh, In the increasingly diverse space of uh, Centenary Square in Birmingham, Birmingham, which has been recently re, uh, redeveloped. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as a queer space. It's still got an awful lot of white in it, but it's also got curvilinear uh, designs. It's got green space. It's got um, uh, fountains. It, the space is broken up. It's not monotonous Um, the the other way in which I think you can do this is if you think about how Daniel Liebskin addressed the uh, German military museum uh, within recent years so uh, obviously you've got there a museum which is uh, moralising a quite problematic history Um, and what he did was take the historic facade of the building which uh, 18th century, I seem to remember, and stuck this huge angular um, uh, glass um, triangle on the front of it. Um, And that glass triangle is used to bring a window into the history of the military, which is frequently, of course, you've had a, a, a very strict social division between civil and military relations. So it's about bringing the light in. Um, There are particular displays within that space which speak to that. So I think he's very cleverly integrated the external aspects of the building with the internal purposes of the building and in the process queered that building, not in the sense of making it LGBTQ-friendly, but queered the narrative, undermined the authorised and the author, uh, narrative of that building and the authority which it was originally design, designed to convey. If you think about a lot of buildings in the past, they had authorities designed into them. So banks were always designed to look really secure for obvious reasons. They were designed with um, you know, classical columns. Uh, they were uh, had relatively low window spaces, etc. And they all articulated um, a particular sensibility, something which has only changed in the post in since the 1960s in terms of bank designs. In the same way, uh, a lot of public buildings were also designed to convey that authority, and very often a male authority, and a male authority which was encoded in the surrounding um, dressing of the site, in the facade of the site, in the way in which you build into that space male statuary, um, or indeed almost phallic symbols with you know, huge towers or whatever, um, uh, into those kinds of spaces. Um, One of the reasons why Nelson's column was put where it was in Trafalgar Square was to um, undermine the um, soft feminine nature of the uh, National Gallery with its kind of um, uh, breast-like dome on on the top of it with this huge phallic symbol instead. Um, So uh, I I think um, queering that, that, that kind of visual language as Lipskin has done, is I think one of the ways in which architects can do that very successfully and, like him, win awards for it.
0: I want to thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a fascinating discussion. The report is called Queering Public Space. We have a link to it on our website. And are there any other sources or books that you think that uh, the audience should uh, read or look at if they want to learn more?
1: Yeah. I I mean, I flashed up uh, this book at one point. And
0: it's called A Queer New York.
1: And um, Katie Gowen, who is at Florida State, has... (laughs) Shows my lack of spatial awareness here. Um, Has published a couple of books, um, which is this is the latest in twenty fifteen, called "Planning and LGBTQ Communities: The Need for Inclusive Queer Spaces." Um, It's directed more towards planning than architecture, um, and there's not necessarily huge amounts about design. There, a lot of it is about thinking about the needs of queer communities. the the needs of ageing queer communities, uh, because frequently you're talking about people with different kinds of family networks who need different kinds of support as they age. Um, But um, uh, those are uh, very useful introductions to the literature, not least because they have huge reading lists within them, which will then get you on to uh, a a lot of the additional stuff that, um, if you're so minded, you could uh, read further on. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me.
0: Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.